welcome to episode 46 of Crackle Comics Weekly Reviews. And guys, Endless Winter is rolling on in the DC Universe as our state just seemed to got our first taste of a possible Endless Winter with the amount of snow we got. We got our first big snowfall of the year a week before Christmas. So, as we've all been snowed in reading comics this week, we'll we'll get to it. Also, by the way, this is our final regular show before uh, next week. We'll do a we'll do, we have a holiday special planned, and then I think we're going to go on hiatus until after the new year. So we'll be back in 2021 after next week. But we'll start with Endless Winter with part four with Vince taking on Aquaman. Yes, Aquaman number sixty six. Uh, it's the Andy Lanning, Ron Mars writing duo for this event crossover, art by Miguel Mendoza, who uh, is nice to see here. He was the main, or one of the main artists of Kelly Sudeikonik's run on Aquaman. So the cover here is kind of hilarious because they're trying to incorporate Andy, you know, the new Aqua Baby, who's basically wearing like it's a weird mix between a superhero costume and a onesie. It's kind of funny. She's also pretty amusing through the issue. She's always, like, making funny sounds or walking on top of the table with the big map and everything like that. So I finally realized in this issue that the flashback narration that we've had through most of the issues is actually Hippolyta speaking, when I totally thought it was Black Adam for a lot of the time. Uh, we have an amazing double-page splash full of whales. And Arthur's plan here to face the endless winter is to recruit the Fire Trolls, uh, who first appeared way back in Aquaman number six, uh, number one in the Silver Age. But what makes zero sense to me is that Arthur here acts like he's never come across the Fire Trolls. He references them as stories that Volko taught him as a kid, and then he, when he comes across them, he's surprised by how big they are. This doesn't work at all. They play a kind of major role in Jeff Parker's run. And he comes face to face with them, and that's totally canon. That was only like five years ago. So I'm going to blame that on the editors goofing up. Um, kind of unfortunate. Mara swings by to help out, and they recruit the trolls, basically because Mara's badass, I guess. Um, and then there's another epic splash page of the trolls running and them in front of them riding on sea dragons. And I'll pretend that the sea dragon that Arthur is riding is Storm from the Silver Age. This is pretty. Great writing here, showing how married and even parent superheroes can work without that much hitches. You know, at some points they split up. Hey, you take care of the kid, I'll take care of the kid. Some points they drop it off with a trusted friend, and it all works out. Um, most of these issues for Endless Winter are very slowly moving the pl overall plot forward. But most of the ones that we've had so far you know, within the individual series or specials or whatever. They've all been great snapshots of the characters, both, you know, their current continuities, very good characterization, and also showing kind of their perspective on it. Um, and I think that's definitely the case here with Aquaman. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think, it, once again, I, these keep being really super fun to me, and that's kind of what I want out of an event like this. It's definitely a placeholder event. That's like, you know, just spearing the gap between, you know, future state and the current, you know, rig of books. But, you know, everyone gets to be off on their own little adventure. Uh, Landing and Mars get Arthur and Mara pretty well, I feel here. And I like that they make use of the daughter. It's not just 
she's not just like a character in the background. They actually have her doing stuff, which is pretty fun. And they actually, you know, bother to write that they're, you know, married and parents now, which is something I quite enjoy to see. And hopefully, you know, that carries over into the new line that of whatever DC decides to do with Aquaman post, you know, March. It looks like, uh, you know, we got the news of some of the titles. Aquaman wasn't listed on there. He's not going to be on the Justice League. But uh, Jim Lee said that we're going to get more titles, you know, April, May. I highly, you know, assume that Aquaman will be one of those characters that gets another ongoing in that, you know, second batch of books that um, eventually will get announced. I don't read a lot of Aquaman books, but uh, this felt really fun to me. And yeah, I mean, it was just a lot of good, good, uh, a lot of good art, too. I mean, a lot of good splash pages and. I don't know. I just I really liked it, and I think the Justice League book. I think it mentions like this the story that goes on in this as well, like very briefly with Aquaman. So that's kind of cool they mentioned that. But I don't know. I thought this was kind of cool. How does it compare to to Justice League for you? I I kind of like this better as we transition into Justice League Endless Winter Part Five, uh, Justice League Number Fifty Eight, written by Andy Lanning and Ron Mars, with art by. Zermanico and Marco Santucci font they use for the like the the name of the issue, not the actual Justice League um, title, but the little uh, little blurb on the issue cover looks exactly like the '90s Spidey font. Anywho, our story opens again in the 10th century, where we see refugees being huddled into a fort to hide from the Frost Giant, and Black Adam returns to reveal that he has stopped the Frost Giant by, or I guess he's going to stop the Frost Giant by using the giant's family to distract him while Black Adam shows up and then kills the frost giant in front of the family, I guess. So, like, I guess that's, like, the theme that runs throughout all these endless winter issues as we keep going back to the 10th century and, like, seeing the flashbacks to that. Uh, Back in the present, though, the Justice League is dealing with the endless winter, and pretty much this issue we get a nice spotlight on Jon Stewart uh, reuniting a dad with his family as he ponders his own family or lack thereof. Um, kind of going back to the first issue of this storyline with Flash asking him about his family and stuff. Uh, John heads back to talk to uh, Detective Chimp, where he finds out about Black Adam. Soon after, the Frost Giant shows up at the Hall of Justice, and the rest, I'm sorry, the Frost King shows up at the Hall of Justice, and the rest of the Justice League shows up to back up John. And I, I really like that, that page when they all just show up and they start fighting together. I thought that was pretty cool and um, triumphant, I guess, in a way. Uh, they defeat the Frost King, only to find out that it was a phony. Oh my god, the classic comic comic trope, I guess. We then finish our issue with the real Frost King brooding and yelling at some silhouettes trapped in ice. So, we'll have to see. I think, obviously, the Justice League issues, I think, push the, the, the plot forward the most. But this is kind of like the same ending we got with Aquaman in some ways. So, it's kind of interesting to see how all these will kind of match up together. But... I like this issue. It felt really fun. It's cool to see Jon Stewart get like the spotlight in this issue. I think that was a good choice to go with, as every other character kind of gets their own stuff to work on. Yeah, the chemistry was good. The writing's really good. I'm really liking this storyline so far. Yeah, Sam, I agree. It's nice seeing Jon Stewart take the kind of the centerfold front here, and then also like Detective Shimp showed up. That's pretty fun. I, I, I can't remember. I think he's on Justice League Dark, though, so it's not like he isn't being used a lot. But, no, it is nice to see him and, like, worked into this event. And then I'll always, you know, I'll always get a 
you know, a slight smile or nod out of a out of a monitor duty reference. But I also thought the there was pretty strong lantern constructs here in the art, and I also would like to point out that I don't know what Dan's talking about with the 1990 Spider-Man font. I I don't I don't get it. Yeah, I love that John. This was a spotlight on him, and particularly his background in Detroit. You know, we saw obviously the Flash stops in with his city. Obviously, Aquaman is dealing with Atlantis, um, and we saw kind of a peek at that in a like a collage page. Um, in the first issue where we saw all the heroes in different spots. Timing's pretty good because I'm intrigued to see that the new Green Lantern book is focusing on John as well. And perhaps in that book, we'll be solving this. Uh, one of the things that he kind of leans into in this issue, which eventually it's resolved as, oh, the Justice League is cool. But John kind of taps into this, I have no family idea. And kind of a bummer. <laughs> but I mean, I guess that... The thing is, like, John has had relationships over the years. You know, he, he was with Kat Matui way back in the 80s, and then Peter David had Star Sapphire go crazy and kill her. And then there's been some wishy-washy stuff since then. There was, I think there were certain things in the, in the Jeff Johns era, and particularly right after that. And then, of course, there's the complicated hawk girl ship, which has kind of bled in from the TV show and was, I think, kind of a thing in the, you know, the Scott Snyder Justice League. So I don't really know the status of that, but I'm intrigued to you know, see some more John Stewart solo stories. I think he had her with Man Martian Manhunter in in his in Snyder's run on Justice. Oh League. yeah, yeah. Because they had the that kid that was in the his final arc or whatever. But yeah, no, I I'm excited to see uh, John take this you know the center stage when we get here and in, into around March. But I'll take us into the final part this week of Endless Winter, which is the Teen Titans Endless Winter Special, which is otherwise part six, Andy Lanning on Mars, Jesus Moreno, and then Marcus Santucci. And unsurprisingly, this is the first one of these that I didn't really enjoy, but I feel that's more that due to, and I'll take the, you know, the the play out of Dan's hat here of, I don't really know who these characters are uh, based on the current status of the Teen Titans. Like I know Wallace West is here, and then thankfully Donna Troy and Beast Boy show up, um, they lay some groundwork for the upcoming Titans Atta- Titans Academy status quo that we've been seeing hinted uh, in Future State and then in this next, you know, publishing line. But the Titans uh, save some people on the Brooklyn Bridge and then, you know, Flash shows up and asks Donna, maybe they could speak to Apollo since, you know, she's faced all this before. It's fine. Like, it's just another solid, you know, issue in this. There's not really a lot to write home about on it other than, you know, I'm now getting exposed to these new Titans characters, which, you know, they seem pretty cool. I don't know who that new Red Arrow is. Um, I'm wondering if that's Ollie's younger sister. But uh, and there's that alien guy that uh, Vince likes. Yeah, the Red Arrow is a Nico Queen, I think, who I think was introduced by Jeff Lemire. I don't really know. Yeah, I think it was Lemire. Ironically, yeah, Mike and I are pulling the Dan card. Oddly, this one, out of... All the issues we've read, I feel, is the most tied to recent events of the characters. But again, maybe that's just that we're not as familiar. But we get references to, you know, the kind of the finale of the, the Teen Titans run and what Damien's been up to. And we also get a reference to the weird, like, Donna Troy arc from Dan Abnett's Titans run, which kind of, you know, the, the branding for it was basically like a Justice League versus Titans story. Though, and, and I enjoy some of these characters. I'm not going to lie, I, I kind of really like the idea of Crush, and she's kind of entertaining here, even though it's very brief. 
But sadly, I think this had the weakest and most inconsistent art of everything we've read in Endless Winter so far. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, same as you guys. Obviously, if you guys don't know the characters, there's no way in hell I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to know them. But I don't know. Yeah, I thought it was just like, of all the things, this feels kind of like the most like filler for this this uh the storyline. So we'll see. It hasn't really sold me on wanting to go out and read the ongoing Titan series if there is one that comes out to this, which I guess there will be. Yeah, I think it's there's T- Titans Academy is what it's, I think it's going to be called. I I don't know. I'm interested with that idea because it looks like they're just they're just going with uh, it's going to be like all the ones from the cartoon are going to be in the book and then cyborgs back on the titans so i might get roped into that we'll see but in other dc events uh, the penultimate issue we got one more chapter of this left dark knight's death metal number six by scott slasher snyder greg crusher capullo and then jonathan death punch glapion so they're all giving themselves nicknames now in the credits so this is just the big fight of, you know, the United Heroes and Villains against the Batman who, you know, laughs or tries too hard, whatever the hell you want to call him at this point. One woman goes to the Forge and finds Darkseid who helps her see that the key to all this is remembering love and that love binds us. So she uses, like, her lasso to do something to get everyone to remember all the DCU history, I guess. And I guess that's going to be, you know, gives them a huge power buff and then also her a power buff because she gets her, you know, invisible chainsaw that, that she'll use, and then Perpetua and Batman who laughs for fighting, and, you know, across the universe with Crisis Energy. Next issue is the last and thankfully the end of all this. I feel like this is a completely kind of a mess of an event, not only from structure, but, like, unless you read every, like, 90-page tie-in that also came out for this, it feels like so much has happened in the last issue. Like, it's like I'm completely lost almost in certain aspects, which I think is a huge problem. Um, for this i think the event is too bloated for its own good um especially like i said when these specials they're pumping out um at these inflated prices of like 90 plus pages is completely ridiculous but you know next issue is thankfully the last one and then we can fully transition into future state and then what dc does after that i'll throw it to dan for batman batman number 105 written by james tynan art by carlo pagulayan danny miki alvara martinez and Christian Deuce. Our story opens years ago in Argentina, where Ghostmaker and Bruce had a long, heated discussion about going around stopping criminal organizations around the world, and Bruce decides to just go back to Gotham instead, obviously, but um, Ghostmaker is kind of like, hey, if you go around and fight with me and free all these other countries, we'll be prepared to go back and take Gotham back from the criminals, and Batman's like, nah, bruh, I'm going back. So in present day, we see Clown Hunter about to kill Harley Quinn, and Bruce barely stops him using a batarang that he gives to Harley. And Harley has like this big talk uh, with Clown Hunter that takes him off the ledge of killing her as Batman goes after Ghostmaker. Basically, the end of the issue is Batman and Ghostmaker fighting for a little bit, and then they're like, hey, we shouldn't fight anymore. All right, well, let's go actually fight together in Gotham. It's just, it's a, it's a very strange ending considering all the things the really bad things that Ghostmaker did up until this point the fact that Batman's now letting him run through Gotham and help him fight crime doesn't really make sense to me and um, I think this is where I get off the bus gentlemen my co-host would say the same one of mine already did get off the bus long ago so yeah Vince never came back to this (laughs) I roped you into coming back to this 
Yeah, I... Oh, boy. Like, and also, like, I don't think we're coming back to Batman. Like, you say this is the end, but this isn't with Ghostmaker and Batman returning in 2021 after Future State. And then we know Tynan is continuing his run post-Future State. Um, But, like, I don't care. This arc was definite... You know, it was definitely filler b- before that. But you can't convince me otherwise of that. You know, the ending was also super rushed and doesn't make any sense at all. Bruce just lets this murderous psychopath, you know, completely ally with him and other the under the guise of like, hey, just don't kill in my city and you know, we're cool. I feel like that's completely recklessly out of character. And he's like, also, I had my whole bat family outside, they would have been able to take you down. Yeah. So it's like what oh, you need another sidekick? And also like he's like they're playing up this fact that Bruce is like broke. He's not broke. He's still a millionaire. He's just not a billionaire. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, can we get like, stop this notion that Bruce can't fund his Batmaning anymore. He's still getting a stipend from Wayne enterprises. It's ridiculous. Yeah. As I said, there's no way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I'm done until something major occurs, but I'm using major and like air quotes, obviously. But for now, like, I think this is safe to say, like, this might be the last stop for us on a Batman book until Endless Winter. Like, And I don't even know if we're, you know, going to be covering Endless Winter, depending on where that Batman special falls in there. And then after that, you know, it's it's Future State by John Ridley for two months. So I'm, I'll look forward to that. But as for now, this is, you know, the end of our journey for Batman after coming back to it very briefly. Um, yeah. But we'll we'll look, you know, we'll. I'm sure, you know, after the show and, you know, amongst ourselves, we'll talk about the DC books that we'll all read. Um, At least, you know, Mariko Tamaki, Dan Moore, Detective Comics is probably a yes for me. And then Tom Taylor getting on Nightwing is something also that excites me. So I imagine at least I'll read those and I'll probably rope you into reading at least one of those two. So I don't know. The future for Gotham in general looks right. But as it right now is with the flagship, I'm it's not. It's not really for me, but like, there's still going to be Batman on the show. Like, you yeah, know, the biggest character DC publishes. I'm not, yeah, I'm happy to drop this when I have like five other Batman books I can go to. Yeah, but for that, we'll switch to Immortal Hulk time. Which Immortal Hulk 41? We got a double dose of Immortal Hulk this week. This is Al Ewing and Joe Bennett, and this is the Hulk versus Thing round two in Coney Island. Um, they do make reference to their fight in Fantastic Four. I can't remember which number. I feel like that was somewhere in the teens. Um, except this is the thing basically beating a child because the Savage Hulk persona that's left, it's only him and Joe. So we're, Joe reverts to himself and basically scolds the thing for beating a child. And then they go to have a hot dog in Coney Island. offering, And then, you know, the thing offers his help to Joe, but he has to decline since, you know, this is a bigger than science um, deal that's going on here. As the conversation then shifts to death and even brings up how the thing died before. And, you know, Joe asks him if he went upstairs or downstairs. And since Bruce, you know, Ben went upstairs. So he's kind of no help to them as, uh, as uh, Joe Fixit says that, you know, when Bruce died, he went downstairs. And that's also where he's been dragged to by the leader. So the thing recites the story of Job to, uh, to Joe and that God is more vast and complex than what he really lets on. So that kind of, you know, they kind of bond over that and come to an understanding, and then he lets Joe get away, and then Dr. McGowan has made her escape to another shadow facility and wants to help Bruce, and is trying to put together pieces that maybe the Hulk needs to realize that he needs his friends and doesn't always need to be alone. 
And I think that's something we're building to as we get to this, you know, final salvo, final act of this run by Ewing. And the final page is that weird Gamma Man looks to have merged with uh, Rick Jones. And that's, you know, the leaders in there. So he's back in the present. So that's not going to be good. Um, another great issue. Uh, I feel like this is one of the best ones in a while. Not to say that, you know, it's been lacking at all. But I like the teases also of Ewing here, uh, at least hinting that he's going to be bringing back the true Joe Fix-It in like Grey Hulk form somewhere down the line too. So we'll see if that's really the case. And then uh, kicking off our very brief King and Black stint, uh, which was King Black and Mortal Hulk number one. This is Al Ewing with Aaron Cooter. And this is just a one shot for King and Black. That's really just a Christmas special that follows the beats of the night before Christmas. Hulk is out wandering around in the city and then he's pursued by a symbiote that's, you know, chased by and he gets also chased by some cops as he's trying to uh, pick up a Christmas present that someone drops on the ground. Eventually, he ends up at Mantlo's toy shop, uh, which makes him like th- there's some great uh, Aaron Cooter child look childlike, you know, exaggerated expl- expressions by the Hulk in this issue that that'll crack you up. But then, you know, Savage Hulk is happy until his PTSD of Brian Banner creeps in, rendering him back to Joe Fixit. And, you know, he's still being pursued by the symbiote. So it's kind of kind of becomes this diehard like scenario or like think Terminator 2 when they got to run around from the T-1000. So for a bit, he also his feet gets cut up by some broken glass and become, you know, he eventually beats the symbiote by uh, managing to defeat it by blasting it with a loud stereo system and then blow, you know, makeshift blow torches it and then reverts back to Hulk and enjoys the toy store. You know, fun, simple. Cooter's art really shines here. I like the exaggeration of the child expressions for Hulk here, especially with the more childlike Savage Hulk. Uh, I thought this was fine. Uh, Vince, I think you read this, so I'll let you. Yeah, I don't really have much more to say. It was pretty fun. I don't know what it was, but just something about this issue. Like, when you do a silent issue, it's kind of a balancing act of, you know, when comics nowadays are three ninety nine or sometimes even higher, you know, it sucks to say, you know, bring in the business side of it, uh, you know, the, the money side. But, you know, as a consumer, you want your money's worth. I don't, to be honest, I don't know that anyone buying single issues is getting their money's worth whatsoever, but that's a whole different discussion. But in terms of silent issues, it was just something about this issue where, like, I just didn't feel that it quite hit that level. Maybe it was that, you know, maybe it's just that, like, it is kind of a, you know, one-off scene kind of thing. It doesn't feel like, you know, very substantial story, which you can still do in silent. I mean, we read, you know, the classic G.I. Joe issue as one of our retros, and, you know, that feels like a full, you know, story with multiple acts within the same issue. Um, And so, you know, when all is said and done, and this is collected in, like, you know, the, the collections alongside Mortal Hulk as, you know, this little snapshot look into this event, I think it's going to work perfectly. But as far as picking it up, going out of your way to grab it, I'm not certain if it knocks it completely out of the ballpark. But it's pretty fun. Yeah, I, I can understand that, especially with the, you know, the more inflated prices that we're heading towards. I, I didn't check to see if this is a more higher page count. This felt like it was 22 to me. It did feel short. But I... You know, if you enjoy Aaron Cooter on art, like I thought, you know, you'll enjoy this. So at least you have that to look forward to. But sticking with King and Black, it's the return of one of Dan's favorite series of 2020, you know, 2019. Yes. So our next issue is a new number one, just in time for this uh, 
King and Black crossover event type of thing. So uh, it's a new Black Cat number one written by Jed McKay with art by C.F. Villa. Uh, our story opens to Black Cat stealing money stolen by some more goons who stole from S.H.I.E.L.D. So we kind of get a long explanation on that before we see her with her lackeys actually using the Spider-Mobile, which she said that I guess he let her borrow or something to tail the car that stole the money. And just as she is about to make her score and grab the money for herself, the King of Black crossover shows up to totally derail her plans for this issue. So once she comes to, she heads off to help the rest of the heroes fight Null. And uh, we see Strange and Doctor Strange, excuse me. And that gets Black Cat thinking about all the times in her previous series where she stole from him. And we actually see Strange swallowed up into like a giant venomized like Lindor truffle, it looks kind of like. That's basically what I kind of look at it as. I don't know. I was eating probably some of these truffles while I was reading this uh, issue. Sorry about that. Uh, so yeah, so Doctor Strange is basically dead or lost in this venomized ball. Uh, later on, Black Cat and her group kind of meets up with Alchemax, who is a doctor that worked with Eddie Brock. And Black Cat kind of like shits on Eddie Brock, like, oh, he's a bum, he's worthless. And Alchemax is like, yo, that guy's like important. He's, you know, we need him during this fight. So anyway, the group hatches a plan that uh, the only way they're going to be able to kind of win this battle is they break out Doctor Strange from the clutches of Null. And this was kind of something that Captain America told her to do as well as his like last order or something. So I thought this was an okay issue. Not a big fan of like, I know, I know that's what this series is for. It's supposed to tie into King and Black, but I don't know. It kind of makes me upset that like it's only being brought back for that. I wish it was kind of like its own thing again, but I think they did a good job handling it, all things considered. And um, I'm excited to see how it goes. It's interesting too that that they're choosing Doctor Strange for her to save, especially since all the bad blood that's been boiling since her previous series with with him. So. Well, I like, the, I, I mean, I didn't read this, but at least I like the fact that they're carrying the strange dynamic in it because she stole from him in, the, in her, ser- you know, her first series. And then they're working together in Amazing Spider-Man um, and, you know, the dot, dot LR issues. And then they're, you know, teaming up again here in, in this now King in Black. It, I guess it, I guess it's a mini series. I think it's like four issues or something. So, like, I don't know. I like that. I'll just keep it with us on Captain America. I don't have a lot to say on it. Uh, Tanasi Coates, and then Leonard Kirk, Matt Miller on colors. Uh, so Steve is actually doing the narration in his own book again, so that's a plus at least. And then the team is, you know, still making their daring rescue of Peggy Carter while Cap narrates about how friends are his most proudest feat in all of these moments. And then Crossbones beats down Thunderbolt Ross to the point he reemerges as Red Hulk again, and then you know he makes the save and salutes Cap. So I guess. Ross is with them now after being the traitor since the beginning of the run. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm waiting for more of this Red Skull plot, which seems like it's simultaneously on hold, but also slowly inching. I don't know what, there's something weird with this book's pacing that's, I feel like, holding it back massively. And then I wasn't super hot on Leonard Kirk on art either. I, I'd like to see this good book get more on a back-on-track basis in 2021. I, I don't know what, what's going on with this, where I don't, like, everything I would describe in this book right now is simply just 
yeah, it's all right. Like like a six out of ten, like doesn't really go above that, doesn't go below it for me. Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree with you on that. I feel like we're just kind of in a holding pattern for the Red Skull at this point. And um, a few things to note. I don't know if it was just me not paying attention, but what is up with Falcon's, like, face mask thing? Oh, like, right. dude. Terrible, right? I hate it. Like, I'm like, what is that? Like, he looks like Vader. I'm like, why does Falcon need to have a, a mask, like, for his whole entire face? Like, I guess, like, maybe it's kind of like, you know, like, pilots who wear like the stuff on their face like when they're yeah, in the... but i mean it just looks weird i don't really like it that much um, if it is when falcon showed up in the last issue do you remember him having that because i don't no. remember him having that no i don't <laughs> that's the whole thing yeah and winter soldier as well he didn't have it in that too either did he no and the fact that they also like almost psych out the fact that like falcon dies it's like nope he's not dead well, the last issue ended with Peggy falling to her death, and I was like, well, she's totally not dead, so yeah. it's been like three fake death fake-outs in a row here to end issues. It's been pretty funny. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. It is what it is. Like, we'll we'll see what comes of it. Like, when this run is good, it's pretty good, but like, when it's, you know, it feels like for the better half of the year, it's just been treading water. But, yeah. eh, we'll see. In Fantastic Four number 27 by Dan Slott and R.B. Silva, I'm continuing on this series mostly to see what Slott does with Lyja, um, one of my stupid characters that I'm interested in. So all the aliens are escaping the Griever and going through the portal, and they're being directed to Four Yancey Street to take refuge because, you know, at Four Yancey Street they have, like, this pocket, like, multidimensional thing, so it's, like, infinite space. And all these aliens think that Franklin, who's technically their creator, you know, after Secret Wars, when he created all of these new universes, they think he's going to save them. But um, his powers are pooped. So uh, meanwhile, back at the gate, Thing and Dragon Man are kind of waiting out if they, you know, in case they have to throw some throw some fists while Valeria and Bentley uh, are trying to shut down the gate. And it's just offhand said that, oh, yeah, Lodge disappeared. We don't know what happened to her. So, derp, there goes my plan of following the series. But then Reed calls up Silver Surfer thanks to a device that Norrin had given Alicia when they had gone on certain adventures together. And we get references without footnotes to Silver Surfer Black by Donnie Cates, I'm pretty certain. And also an arc from Dan Slott's Silver Surfer run, which, of course, makes you know a lot of sense. And Franklin is bummed, but it turns out this is a Christmas story, or it's kind of like, here's your Christmas present ahead of time. Because Reed essentially gives Franklin the hand-me-down Iron Man suit that Tony made for Reed during Empire, which made zero sense. So, Dan, you should have kept on this book, because this is kind of low-key an Iron Man book, kind of, not really. And But Griever ends up coming through the gate, tracks down Franklin, but it turns out the armor was empty. Franklin was piloting it remotely. You know, classic Iron Man move. And all the refugees escape into Yancey Street, and then Reed presses a button and essentially collapses for Yancey Street and all the dimensions inside. But nope, Reaver is still a thing, and she's even more mad. And then also, Lyja shows up at the very end and helped out after all. So we're fully into this Griever arc. Um, and uh, I mean, it's pretty entertaining. Um, I'm enjoying it a bit. The art is pretty good from Arby Silva, as you'd expect. Uh, I'm going to stick on it mostly to see more Elijah. 
I'm so glad I did not have to watch and see that armor because that probably would have made me cringe harder than when I first saw it. Anyways, our next issue is Iron Man number four, written by Chris Cantwell, art by Cafu, and colors by Frank D'Armada. Our story opens to Tony being interviewed about Rhodey's disappearance at the hands of Korvac. So later on, Patsy and Tony kind of hatch a plan to go after Korvac, as Patsy is still still healing from a nasty burn on her face from Korvac's lightning back in Oklahoma. So the two end up making out a shocker. It only took four issues for them to start doing that. Meanwhile, New York, Korvac and his goonies, including the controller, are staked out at St. Michael's Church. Wow, that's pretty on the nose there, Marvel. Uh, where they have Rhodey hostage by using the controller's discs. And um, the controller is you know, uh, shocked to find out that Rhodey's still talking with three of his discs. It makes me wonder if the controller could have just put a fourth disc on there and shut Rhodey up, but I guess not. I guess it only has three. Anyway, uh, Korvac is plotting to travel to the Tattoo, I guess which is home of Galactus, to, I guess, attain more power. Down in the basement of the church, Korvac sets up a lightning crucifix to charge himself up while Tony and Patsy try to uh, find help to go after Korvac, and they can't go... It's it's funny, because like, when they're talking about the people they're trying to recruit, they, they name-drop Avengers and Fantastic Four, but they say, like, all of Xavier's people on Krakoa. And I'm like... Why don't you just say X Men? But I guess that's I guess that's not what they're called. Maybe these days I don't know. I don't keep up with the X books. I'm sorry. But anyways, they try to find help as Corvac uh, throws in a jab at the Phillies. Oh no, I'm not Corvac. Um, Tony throws in a a jab at the Phillies when he's like, "Oh, we couldn't find enough help. You know, uh, they could they could beat the Phillies." And I'm like, "Wow, that's pretty bad that we're getting mentioned as an awful team in a modern day comic." Anyways. In the streets, Tony runs into this like robot that he needs to get him more help to fight Korvac as Korvac takes over Patsy's body for a little bit until Tony uses a fire hydrant to knock her back to her senses. Uh, Tony then discovers that Korvac is heading to Tatu to confront Galactus. This series has blown up to some cosmic proportions, but I still feel like it's grounded, which is really important, obviously, for an Iron Man book. It's definitely keeping you on the book, obviously. Vince will be happy to know that I think he did. He might have noticed this, but they did mention the Korvac saga in a footnote again, um, with him destroying everyone and bringing them back to life again. So that's kind of cool that uh, Chris Cantwell is again. He's this is not his background. Obviously, I think he's from the film industry. And the fact that he's making all these footnotes from previous storylines, I think, is pretty cool. And yeah, this book is really good. So I mean. Traditionally, the Phillies have sucked. I just want you to know well, that. Like, it kind of worked in any era. <laughs> Outside of 1980 and 2008, it just kind of worked. That's the worst. I mean, they are, but also, you know, the Mets are more relevant because they play That's in New York. Um, I mean, they'll always be more. I, 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 This is a complete tangent, by the way, but I passed a car on the street that was completely covered in Mets colors and Mets logos today, and I almost saw it hit another car. It did kind of make me laugh a little bit. Uh, there's, I don't know why there's a giant Mets car where I'm at, but there is one. But no, uh, I really like this a lot. Um, I'm guessing Cantwell is keying on the fact that Galactus is dead right now because Thor killed him in, uh, in Thor. So I guess that does leave a huge power vacuum for him to you know, steal his stuff and use that to power himself up. So I'm wondering if that's 
you know, he, him looking at the, the wider universe and taking charge of that. Um, and I think he would, cause I think Cantwell definitely is following the other books, uh, pretty closely, but no, this is another really good issue of Iron Man. And I, I know I liked Rhodey just completely resisting them. I thought it was a pretty, pretty good moment for him. Um, I would say that at the beginning though, it felt like I missed something because I, I don't remember them escaping at the end of number three. We just kind of opened up with somehow they've got Rhodey and now we went there. So a little bit, I'd say my only critique is I don't really love the opening of this, but outside of that, it was good. And then I liked the the fact that he did key in and like, hey, we just can't go to the big guns for this. We got to keep it on the down low because Corvac's expecting. And then, I don't know, I'm kind of intrigued by the new mutant character that they meet at the end of this. I think he's kind of interesting. But Vince, I'll give your thoughts. Well, the, the mutant character, I because I looked it up and I was curious, like, hey, have we seen this person before? So he was the person that Tony did a drag race with against in the first issue. Right, right. Um, yeah, so we, we've we seen him, but I had to double check that. They could have used a footnote there. Well, they kind of did, actually. Um, they kind of did. They referenced him racing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really good. I like I continue to like how raw the conversations are between Tony and Patsy. Um, you know, Tony asks her like, Hey, are you going cuckoo again? And, you know, and that, again, that's also just like the footnotes is relying on continuity, which, you know, I mentioned whenever they first alluded to that. Um, and, you know, she hits back at him and they're, you know, I, I really like their chemistry so far in this book. Um, like Dan said, we, you know, we expected that they were going in this direction and I'm okay with it. I actually kind of like it more so than, uh, you know, Wasp, which was kind of Tony's last thing. I think the, the scarred face is kind of low key an interesting development. You know, I, I would be very surprised if Patsy Walker still has this scarred face, you know, in 40 years from now in comics. So I don't know if Cantwell resolves that, if someone else resolves that, um, you know, there's there's a one-off comment like, you know, we can go to Reed. He'll probably figure it out. So, but I, so I'm, I'm slightly interested to see if he if he does anything more with that, or if he's just like, all right, she has a car now. Um, which is in, there's interesting angles to hit there too. Well, um, yeah, I'm enjoying this. I would say like they, they make that comment, but I think I mean she'll be healed up. But the whole point of it is like Tony is to blame for why that happened. Yeah, and that's why the conversations and the character work here by Cantwell are so good, because Patsy is the only person that seems to be holding Tony accountable and making him realizing that. So in three, now four issues, uh, you know, you completely buy into their dynamic at this point, and this is why it works. It's not like she just showed up and Cantwell wants to use Patsy, and oh, they're suddenly together. No, it's definitely earned from the first three issues too now for you know where we got at the beginning to why we're here. So I, it's a dynamic that's really working, um, and I'm really excited to see how he's going to handle this going forward and the upcoming you know, team up with Doctor Doom for the King and Black one-shot. I'm looking forward to that as well. We have nothing else to say on that. We'll transition into X-Men Corner. Previously on X-Men. And I'll just leave it on all three of us here because we'll. I don't feel like we're going to spend a ton of time on this. This is Wolverine Black, White, and Blood number two. Um, we get three stories here, Vita Ayala and Greg Land with Jay Leaston and Frank Dermata on Unfinished Business. That's uh, a saber-tooth fight. Seeing Red is by Salatin Ahmed and Kev Walker, and which I feel like that was the best story here. And then Do We Die Today by Chris Claremont and Salvador LaRocha. 
oh boy, we kind of hit the, I mean, Vince hit it hard on this book last week with Batman and Black and White returning, but wow. Yeah, these are these aren't even in the same class, same grade, much less the same school, and how different they are. Oftentimes, I feel that the, the red color is either too prominent that distracts my eyes, or it's used so limited that it's hardly noticeable. But I, I mean, the stories are met all around here. We get a saber tooth battle. The arcade death trap is the one I most entertained me, and then the Madripoor shenanigans. Two of the three of these artists at least from what I can tell, are primarily going for a heavily photorealistic style and I think are digital at this point because with how heavily like airbrushed their art looks normally. So that'd be La Rocha and Land. So I don't think a black and white center works really well for that at all um, because it just comes off looking very plasticky. The whole book looks that way, but the Kev Walker art at least doesn't really have that weird shine to it which is why it's my favorite. But yeah, I mean, we'll stick around for issue three because we'll see Jorge Fornes drawing a Silver Samurai fight. And then also Donnie Cates and Chris Bocciolo uh, intrigues me. But yeah, I just, I, it's just not great to me. Like it, 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 it's a definitely an inferior imitator to the master class that we got last week. Yeah. The art, not super exciting. Um, I think, and I mean, Kev Walker's the highlight, and they fight robots, and there's like this weird gimmicky spawn-like progress bar at the bottom, which is kind of cool, but even this is, as we kind of predicted, this is weaker than the first issue, in my opinion. Um, you know, the first issue we had Kubert, Kassara, and Declan Shalvey, and Kubert and Kassara, they felt very kind of boring because they're literally on the main X-Books drawing Wolverine without, you know, in full color, totally normal. Um, but then I think even, but obviously they're, you know, those are two very fantastic artists and who work tr uh, traditionally. So it would, you know, they work for this format. Um, but then also, I mean, I think the Declan Shalvey art was more impressive than not even the highlight here, with Kev Walker. Um, so this is definitely not as good as the first, not remotely as good as Batman Black and White. Um, and the stories here are pretty generic, like Sabretooth fight with absolute nonsense. Claremont and LaRocca kind of do their thing, and you're either going to kind of love it or hate it. You know, those pe those two guys have collaborated on X-Men stories for like over 25 years or something like that. Um, but I, the one thing I didn't take note of, but definitely agree with you on, is the use of red. Especially in some of these stories, like it gets to a point where like two-thirds of the panels are red. And like it's not really achieving the, you know, the, what you'd think the premise of this book would be. You know, I was expecting just the splashes of blood. You know, when his claws stab someone. But now we have Kate Pride's entire dress being red, tons of people with red hair, all kinds of red things, and it just it, it feels busy and stuff. And and on that note, I'm interested to see because DC just announced like a Superman red and blue book. Yep. And as different publishers are trying to do this kind of concept, but trying to tweak it a little bit. I'm interested to see if, if that book works as well on that level. I, we only have the one image to go on for the Superman Red and Blue. It looks like it's it looks to be like a watercolor influence on that cover. I, I don't assume the whole book is going to look like that, but it, if it does, I think that'd be really interesting to see how they experiment with different hues of reds and blues that could be really interesting but yeah for this i it's kind of a mess just in terms of just 
I I also just think Salvador LaRoche's art here just wasn't great at all. Um, his Kate Pride, I, I I wouldn't have known it was Kate Pride unless they told like unless it said it was Kate Pride, and it, thankfully it did because I didn't even recognize her in there. Uh, Dan, you skimmed this. Any thoughts? Just like what you mentioned with the R, I mean, there was times where the R I felt like was okay, and then there's times where yeah, it just there just seemed like a bunch of lines on the page. <laughs> I mean, it's it's it, that's the only downside with some of the stuff is that it's kind of hard to tell, like with this limited like color, like what stuff is, and I don't know. I I'm yeah. I if I if I would have been able to actually go through it all. I would have more thoughts, but yeah, the fact that I think you said Greg Land's Greg Land um, illustrated the one of these uh, stories, right? Yeah, I mean Greg Land is a whole other podcast, I think. So I won't really go into He's that a whole here, but podcast, but um, also like yeah, mo- like I said, you got that stupid shine and airbrushing all over his pages. Like it's just it's not going to work in black and white, much less accents on it yeah well, well yeah i mean when you, when you copy and paste everything yeah, yeah. that's what happens i mean let's Roca is not you know the best of that either. <laughs> um but like you said that's a topic for another time but like i'll go back to what vince and i talked about for issue one for this why can't mark silvestri do eight pages like go out empty your cash books get mark silvestri to do eight pages you know hell even like it, go crazy with it drop money in front of frank miller to do a three-page wolverine story who knows I imagine if they did the same thing for Batman, we could probably get it. But yeah. Well, the good way to do it, I mean, obviously it seems that Marvel is a lot more thrifty on this series than Batman Black and White, which fine. They're, they're not trying to 100% copy the formula. But all you really need to do is, you know, you pick like one top tier artist and then two people that are, you know, up and coming but have very unique styles. So you could have, you know, you could pull in Silvestri for the main story and then pull out some like weird picks like Danny, like Danny, who we saw, you know, already doing big two stuff. She did a story in one of DC's anthologies. So obviously she's fine if it's just a couple pages. Um, and there's tons of other artists, you know, that I could think of similar to that, like Daniel Warren Johnson, who's doing a beta Ray Bill series coming soon, like have him do eight pages. But here it's like, I don't even know how you would break this down because Kev Walker, Kev Walker, like he's a great artist. You know, I love him going back to, you know, his Thunderbolts run with Jeff Parker. You know, he's not super, it's not a super distinct style and he's not a super huge name. So maybe he's the cheap one here. I don't really know, like, based on them using them constantly and them, like, kind of having high profile, I, I guess Greg Land and LaRocca are, have higher page rates. And obviously they have fans because they keep getting the gigs. But, like, me personally, and I know you both of you agree, like, Reglan and LaRocca as your top billers here, not enticing um, without even going to our specific comments on their art. I'd say the last time I thoroughly enjoyed Greg Land art was when he was drawing Iron Man, and that's because he didn't have to draw a lot of faces. <laughs> I would say like 1997. Oh, no, no. Oh, that's much better than that. I'm telling you the last time it was like passable. Yeah. For me. Um, actually, like, actually like 2005, like cross-gen children. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know. We're throwing out names we'd like to see, and this is for either book. Uh, Martin Marazzo, I'd really like to see uh, do something on one of these two books as well. But all right, we'll fully transition into into X Men Corner with with New Mutants. 
Yes, the 14th issue of this series. We now have a new creative team, sort of. New writing by Vida Ayala, but Rod Reese draws this issue. I'm not sure why this change happened. Ed Brisson, as far as I, you know, my opinion, was doing very well with it. And he kind of barely had a run because initially you had the flip-flopping between him and Hickman. So Brisson's run total, I don't even know if it was 10 issues. But we open with a recapped origin of the Mal Farouk, a.k.a. the Shadow King, kind of. I mean, it's kind of like a Shadow King possesses him. That's a little complicated. But um, then the data page thingy explains that basically the young mutants on Krakoa are fucking bored and aimless um, in, because they're in paradise and they don't have anything to do. You know, besides a couple exceptions, the X-Men, you know, they're not going outside of Krakoa and doing super heroic stuff, you know, in New York like they used to. So, and there's even weird references, like some of them are like self-harming, like you're just so bored on Krakoa, you're just cutting yourself? I don't know. <laughs> so the new mutants are going to try and do some schooling uh, or something, and they get approval from Charles, who's just like, that's a great idea. Obviously, I understand that idea, but I'm not going to help you, so have fun. And we get a couple squads here. So there's the Ferals group, which includes Fauna, who I think Fauna was introduced in the Dawn of X era, Anil, Nature Girl, and Scout. And I don't know when this happened, but I guess Gabby Kinney, formerly known, I believe, as Honey Badger, is now called Scout. I don't know when that changed. Then there's the Elementals group, which is Rainboy. I'm kind of blanking on if Rainboy is a Dawn of X character or not. I'm not sure when he appeared, uh, if that's not the case. Petra, Sprite, and Dust. So there's some fun characters here, but I don't really entirely like these choices. Um, there's kind of some wrinkles to it as a super nerd X-Men fan. So Petra is technically like the 10th to the 13th, somewhere in that range, member of the X-Men. You know, she's from Deadly Genesis and that whole Brubaker retcon, which takes place before Giant Size. Granted, she died on her first mission and then has been only resurrected for the Dawn of X era. So I guess she's a noob. And, I, you know, I don't know how age works in that you know, sense either. So maybe she's even young as well. Like, I don't know how she compares to Darwin, who was on that team but didn't die. But I think maybe he did die, but then he's back. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But Anil and Dust, more so than her, those characters are, like, over 15 years old. They're from the Academy X era, basically the Morrison era. But more importantly, they fully graduated, you know, the Xavier School and became full genuine members of the X-Men at the end of Jason Aaron's run on Wolverine and the X-Men. So those two are kind of being de-aged, demoted, and the continuity is kind of glossed over here. And that kind of annoys me because those are actually two characters that I really like. And obviously I'm a, well, not obviously, I'm a huge fan of that era of kind of the young school X-Men characters, that generation of them. The actual story, the new mutants, the ones, the new mutants that we know, there's a demonstration of the synergy of powers, and it's kind of cool, like, Warpath puts on Warlock as, like, a mecha suit for a moment, um, and, like, Magic is, like, teleporting Wolfsbane around. So they're like, hey, kids, this is your next lesson. You're going to, you know, kind of swap. You're going to keep swapping with each other and figure out, really experiment and push your uh, powers. And then as they kind of end the lessons for the day, Gabby, 
asks, how come certain characters aren't resurrected yet? Um, and then the major example she gives is Madeline Pryor, which I believe there was a Hellions arc. I mean, I know because the, the covers were all hyped up. There was a Hellions arc with Madeline Pryor back in Goblin Queen. So I guess she died during that. Um, but they're like, but Gabby's like, you know, how come she's not resurrected? And the new mutants kind of give like a slightly like it, it is a logical explanation, but it's also bullshit when you have Mr. Sinister on the Shadow Council, when you have, you know, all these other characters walking around. And Gabby's kind of bummed out about some of those hypocrisies and loopholes. So I'm sure that's a development going on. And then in the end, some of the kids, including Anil, who again is supposed to be like way more older and mature than all these other characters, they go to snitch up in the mountains with the Shadow King. So other than what I already said, you know, nitpicking some of the continuity and stuff, this was a good direction for the series, and I think Ayala does fairly well with it. X-Force number 15, which is the final book on our rundown. This has been Percy Joshua Kassara. Uh Once again, by the way, reading an X-Men book and having skipped their mega 22-part crossover, I haven't missed anything, uh, at least in my mind, from what was going on before the crossover. So... Uh, what was the point of X of Swords if I can completely miss the 22-part crossover and uh, there's not really any effects to be seen? That's a topic for another time, I suppose. Beast is still being a shady piece of garbage. She wants to grow Colossus harder for the Russian attack, but is stopped by Wolverine. And, uh, you know, Jean, they get Gene to basically, you know, question him, and Colossus is free to go as he's completely absolved of anything that Beast was thinking of. And, you know, he pretty much retires, uh, and he doesn't want to fight anymore. So he's off the table. Let him go live in peace. And then Logos and Beast shift focus to Omega Red and use him as a double agent for the vampires. And they get override protocols for Xavier for X-Force to basically do whatever they want, which is super sketchy. Um, and then we see the vegetation virus attack a whale and then turn it, you know, turn it to that. And then it attacks a tanker ship, which crushes the crew. And now they've washed up on Krakoa, attacking Domino and Black Tom. Uh, and then rest in peace to Domino's dog, Rufus who uh, gets it in the attack. This is really good. Like I I'm liking the inner politics here, but it's getting real scummy and like, but that's the point of this book. But um, so far, I mean, the Kassar, it's great. And I like Ben Percy, but like, Oh boy, beast is a total garbage person now, isn't he? I want to touch on your first point off the bat, as far as the connection of 10 of swords, X of swords, because this picks up literally immediately where we left off before the crossover. So I don't even know, like, is this before X of Swords or were previous issues before the crossover at, take place after the crossover? I wish they would be a little bit more clear and, you know, make sense on some of this because in New Mutants, I, I didn't even mention it, but there is reference, like, um, to the crossover. So this new, granted, it's a new creative team, so you kind of expect some transition, but New Mutants number 15 it to is firmly after the crossover it's very clear and whatever whichever specific x-men books we read the previous week it was a similar situation where some of them like sword directly came out of ten of swords but i believe when we read the last issue of um marauders it picked up like directly where we left off but also referenced it so it's a little inconsistent in the various x books i wish it was you know wrapped up a little bit tighter but um, also this issue felt kind of busy. It felt like there were a lot of threads being continued or picked up. 
And yeah, I just, I'm actually kind of getting annoyed at Beast and the way he's being used in the series because the whole idea of like evil Beast, like that's not an old thing. Like that Dark exists. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Dark Beast exists in a separate, and I don't know really, you know, we haven't really gotten any reference to that. Um, but like Beast being like this manipulating kind of weirdo creep. It's really like mostly a Bendis thing. Like it's it's something that was in obviously when he brought the O five and then Bendis right. himself and then other writers have been like, Hey, that's kinda of fucked up and they kinda of leaned into that. And there are like one or two other instances, like going back, maybe even to like the Morrison era and stuff like that. But for the most part, like this is new and I don't really like that we're leaning into this and furthering it rather than moving away from it you know you never know like there could be you know what we predicted way back in the beginning of the series is like maybe there's going to be some big surprise and there's going to be some dark beast reveal or connection and things like that maybe we're still waiting on that but i don't really like it like like you don't sympathize with beast at all he's just oh he's always in the wrong like he's basically like dick cheney (laughs) for the x-men at this point well, the thing is, they're they're getting to a point where his characterization here is it's basically the same as Mister Sinister, just without the comedy. Yeah, and so it's like we already have Mister Sinister doing the exact same things that Beast is doing over in Hellions. So like, I don't, I, and I like I kind of like Beast, you know, when he's not this Beast. So <laughs> it's kind of frustrating. Yeah, and then my other, I guess my deeper questions go from, what's the point of the council if Xavier can just override it and then be like, X-Force can do whatever they want, so why even vote on it? Like, that's, it's all kind of, I mean, obviously it's done there to basically, you know, Grey is a very big morality in this book, but also, like, Beast is always in the wrong, and it's played that way, so is it really? I don't know. Like, I'm still enjoying it, but, like, I am wondering what the payoff is going to be for this down the line. But... Enough for that. Let's focus on our retro book, which is The Flash, number 208, from May 2004. This is Jeff Johns and Howard Porter. And this is actually my first time reading a Jeff Johns Flash issue that isn't Barry in the spotlight. So nice to finally check that off my list. But this is, you know, eventually I'll have to get all of his run next to my Wally book, next to my Wally books as a. as my Wade ones hopefully keep releasing. And this is a very, very good issue. Um, as Vince will let you know uh, when he gets to his recap, but uh, yeah, John's the, uh, he's let me know that this is one of the few times John's actually pulls the flash family into the run. Um, and I know this is one of the covers that they use for one of the thick trade paperbacks too. This is the the cover with Wally and then Jay and uh, Bart on it. Uh, the Michael Turner cover. Um, Wally does get help from Bart and Jay to thwart some of the newer rogues and abracadabra when they, you know, they're touring the New Leaf uh, Flash Museum. They get took to that later, but they help uh, take them out of commission. And I think they're, yeah, they're in Keystone. So Wally is still kind of reeling from the time his identity was no longer public. It got wiped, they got wiped away. And then he's being bummed that people don't remember him and his uncle. And he's like trying to build up that courage to be like, hey, Jay and Bart, uh, I'm Wally West. But they already knew. And they reveal that, oh, yeah, we knew. We just wanted to let you, you know, say it at the time, but also apparently people don't remember that Barry Allen was the first Flash, so that's also, you know, kind of throwing him for a spin as well. 
So it, we kind of get this kind of cool moment where they're touring the new, uh, new Flash Museum that's been rebuilt. Um, but then he's like suddenly summoned by the JLA, who are pretty mad at him, probably for his identity. They at least get a line about that. And then I think that's Gorilla Grodd scheming in the background, which they do allude that he tackled with Grodd recently. Um, Howard Porter's art here is much more uh, like his JLA work, which for me, um, that's my preferred style. But I'm not going to you know hold that against them at all. He, he had a hand injury, uh, which is, you know, definitely changed his style up. We, we've talked about before. I'm guessing this is pre-injury, though, because this still really looks like his JLA stuff. But no, this is really, really good and, you know, makes me want to read more of that acclaimed Jeff Johns flash run in the early 2000s. So I'm wondering how that would all play out here and what exactly was going on with his identity gets wiped. Cause I know he gets it wiped and then also Linda's no longer with him too. But gentlemen, what do we think of flash number 208? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I really like this issue. I mean, this is definitely top tier retro issues that I think we've read so far. Howard Porter's art. I love it. It looks really good. Um, something about like the shading, I think too really lends itself to like like really dramatic like like panels and stuff like that so um it kind of reminds me a little bit of like the art style that i we saw in like sean chen's like iron man run with kurt busiek i feel like it was like kind of like the same type of line work i don't know it, that's kind of what this whole thing reminds me of it's also in the same um time as well as that so i don't know what it was about the early 2000s but i mean this really pops off the page and yeah, I mean, the story's really great, and um, now I need to go out and buy this run in paperback. I'm not even done collecting Wade stuff yet, but... Uh, you can get the new the new print and the newly remastered omnibuses. That too. I can do that as well. But, no, I like this. I'll line up. This is a very good comic book. You know, I agree with what Mike and Dan said, but I'm going to kind of go the different direction, just to point out certain things and nitpick. I feel like this issue is also kind of emblematic of some of the quirks that Jeff Johns had on Flash, uh, particularly even Wally West, and at least in comparison to Mark Wade and why I think it comes up short in that comparison. Like Mike said, like, you know, Bart, Jay, Max Mercury, which that's kind of an asterisk because he's like kind of dead at this moment. But a lot of these characters don't show up a ton in Jeff Don's Flash, whereas obviously in the beginning of Wade, they weren't really around. Wade built up to that. But then they're, you know, they're a recurring presence. And granted, Impulse is the, the Impulse book is canceled by this point. So obviously, I guess it makes some logical sense following in the footsteps of from Wally, who had graduated from Kid Flash to Flash. But I don't really know why impulse became kid flash um and john's i think also did that but not in this because he's writing bart over in teen titans so you figure he would appear here more and you know lean into that like why would you know there could have easily been a teen titans flash crossover even um you know there was a teen titans outsiders crossover for example and a legion crossover um but alongside the name change the main thing as a Bart Allen fan is that he's changed visually when he makes that transition. Howard Porter here, Mike McCone over in Teen Titans and, and, you know, everyone in this era, they moved away from kind of that original design, which I think is co-created by Mike Ringo and Mike Ringo did that, did this as well. But obviously in the impulse series, you had artists like most notably Umberto Ramos, but then Craig Russo and Ethan Van Skyver and Carlo Barberi did the same thing where you had, Bart would be with this massive feet 
and this floppy hair. And I think that played a lot of part in making his character really distinct and fun. But here he just looks like he looks like teenage Wally, like pulled forward or something. He looks exactly like Wally. Yeah, the hair is different. He looked like Wally did, you know, when he was Kid Flash. Um, and then the the one thing, I'll, the other thing I'll say is that just while I'm kind of nitpicking and ragging on John's Flash, even though acknowledging this is a really good comic book and classic run, here's my strange nonsense hot take. I think the greatest contribution to the entire Flash mythos that Jeff Johns made was the Iron Heights prison. I'm not a huge fan of bringing Barry back, but that's a whole other conversation. I'm not going to get into that too much. I think Zoom was executed fairly well, but just like Captain Boomerang 2 and Trickster 2, which John's also created, Zoom is like really derivative. And when you think about it really hard, they, they've done further retcons to like explain it even more, like very recently, I believe. Yeah. But like Zoom is derivative and doesn't like even totally make sense. Um, and like, I think John's other major new villain is Tar Pit, who we see in this issue. Um, and we've, we've actually seen in some Flash stuff that we've read in the modern day when we very occasionally poked into that book. Um, I mean, Tar Pit's a good, like, C-list Flash villain. Um, I kind of like him. But, I mean, and then Johns technically creates the twins in his final issue. But that was more like a mic drop with him not really involved in their actual development. And then, of course, a lot of Flash fans don't even like them in the first place. So, like... My very weird hot take as I read this, because Iron Heights is very prominent here, is like, that's probably the best thing Johns did for the franchise, besides writing a lot of really good comics. I mean, I imagine that the whole reason why Impulse becomes Kid Flash is because Jeff Johns wanted him to be Kid Flash because he was writing Titans. Yeah. Which, I mean, gradually, that is the next step, because that Titans run spin, like, it spins out of Young Justice. So, it is kind of the characters taking that more next step visually too because you know cassie had like the wig and everything and now she's then that she's got the the different costume right um yeah. blonde hair so she looks more like one uh she looks more like wonder girl than she would necessarily in young justice and then you know bart gets the yellow suit as because oh well we need a kid flash because it's titans that's kind of what it always you know resonated with me and also like jeff johns has made those decisions where it's just like I like Barry. Let me bring Barry back. So he eventually did that when he had enough pull. But like he wasn't like like I'm pretty sure he's the one who changed Wally's suit from the like the white eyes and the darker red to let me just give him Barry's costume, but we'll keep the belt the same. So like he, 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 his subtle changes were there from the beginning. Yeah, and then of course you know just to finish the trinity of Young Justice into Teen Titans, Superboy just stops wearing a costume and just buys a t-shirt. <laughs> wearing a t-shirt. Which, I, whether you like it or not, that's become an iconic look for Superboy. Yeah. But, like, even for me, because they're so distinctly different, I thought they were two different Connors, honestly, for the longest time, because they are so different looking. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Or, if not, we can go to Picks of the Week. My pick is going to be, I think it's going to be Aquaman. All right. Daniel? Um, this is not me looking through rose-colored lenses. I gotta go oh, I'm now. so surprised. Dan chose the Iron Man book. Uh, next next time we have a regular show, I'll, I'll, I'll break out our stats for pick of the week, so you might be interested to see what they are. Um, I'm wondering, by the way, Dan, I do want you to know, uh, Iron Man was not the book you chose the most this year even with 
all even if you factor in the 2020 books it wasn't yeah it's pretty easy to guess what you chose instead um yeah it's very easy um so with that and then i'll I'll go with immortal hulk i just thought that issue 41 was really really good but also like i there wasn't anything i read this week that i didn't really not enjoy other than maybe wolverine the the wolverine stuff i didn't think that was super great but that's our show and that's our final show for the rest of the year well other than our the holiday special we'll do next week but we're we're not doing new comics that week we're just gonna look at holiday issues uh curated by us so we'll i'll release what what we're reading watch out for the rundown uh when that creeps out next wednesday or maybe i'll probably get that out on monday or tuesday because we're doing the show on wednesday but wait no that won't be released till friday i'm giving things away um but i'm letting you know our recording schedule (laughs) but uh that's all i have for this week uh go shovel the snow stay safe dig your car out if it's you know completely encased in snow around it mine was this week so Without further ado, that's all I have for you this week, and then we'll see you in 2021.